Come hither, my friends who listen to see. A thousand apologies be dripping from me. The Audacity Project, so sure in its style, decided to just make me scream for a while. Though perpetually lost, I have not given in, for the smiling pretender to give in is a sin. And so, this time, post-contrition in rhyme, the story itself will be jumping the line. The intentions are pure, and you know that is the cure, for the illness that says yes to more stress and less rest. So, invest your attention, embrace our dimension, and soon you'll be ready for perception's retention. An Odyssey's epilogue. Ezra Hennessy raised his head slowly, leaning back in his desk chair. The lumbar support kicked in as he arched his back, stretching the bottom of his spine. Where the hell had all that come from? Just then, the post-chapter headache kicked in, but rather than wincing against it, he smiled embracing. Despite his condition, Ezra had never usually been one to dwell on the inspiration for his work. Knowing that it would send him down far too many rabbit holes of cackling, tearful manias that only faded with blood and time. The scars, though, made sure it only faded, never truly disappeared. And Ezra knew in his heart that Kaya was no different, because, in a way, many ways, their hearts were one and the same. That's why he hadn't, so far at least, given her a fresh start and or a happy ending in the conventional sense. No, rather a decidedly painful new direction and an unexpectedly bearable continuation. He had based the beginning of this new story on reality, like he did with most of his stories, sometimes a little too much reality as his various critics often commented. Whether they be people he trusted, decidedly few, like his college tutor, some admittedly superficial friends with similar aspirations he had come into contact with over the years, or his own twin sister, whom he confided in on all things human and beyond. On one occasion, Ezra had tried to write a story with no science fiction liberties, based on experiences he had had periodically visiting Kaya at a rehab clinic in Brooklyn two years before. It was, to his mind, a realistic take on how someone similar to Kaya might overcome, or at least gain the strength to have a lifelong daily showdown with, her addiction. Cool story, bro, she had said, and then there was a pause before she broke eye contact. But are you trying to drive me to suicide? Too depressing, Ezra asked. Too real, man. Where are all the spaceships, the monsters, the distant planets? He felt to look at him again, although his head had been turned away. Before he answered, Ezra made a play of looking around the clinic's waiting room, surveying all the lost souls as he had done every time he entered the inpatient's visitation room, and seeing as clear as day all the origins, epicenters, conclusions, both foregone and unsubstantiated, in relation to those chemical dependencies they would now be labelled with for the rest of their lives, if not forever in the outside world, then inevitably constant within. Finally, Ezra met his sister's eye. You mean the all-too-familiar and obvious allegories of literal depictions of metaphorical demons and dreams of distant lands and other dimensions and worlds of fantasy that become reality? Yes, there was no hint of humor on her face, and she had said this without any pause for thought. That was the moment when Ezra Dante had realized, not for the first time, but never more clearly, that, like him, his sister had the kind of brain that processed things through the very essence of the fantastical, the unbelievable. Because to the twins, it seemed, there was much more to be learned from that 
than the boring regurgitation of this monotone reality that Kaya, in her own way, and Ezra in his, wanted, needed, to escape from. They had just chosen different versions of precisely the same mechanism. Cope to escape. Escape to cope. And so, from then on, Ezra had made sure whenever writing a story that contained a character based on Kaya, or a story that just flat out contained her, it would always be based in worlds where those fantastical things were possible. Because those were the stories that would make her smile, would make her soul light up and live on, just so she could carry on reading. Souls are made of smiles and tears, after all. Or, to put it another way, souls are made of stories. Ezra's stomach grumbled, loudly. As usual, the slow-release energy of the carb-heavy meal was long gone. This time, however, the pain was a bit more pronounced than he was used to. He groaned, and he put his hand on his stomach. Just then, the scars on his arms ignited, as if they were, once again, fresh. His right hand went from his stomach to his left arm. The shirt he was wearing was grey, baggy and long-sleeved, with almost a silvery tinge to his palate. His right hand came away moist to the touch, and he finally looked down. All down his left arm, and presumably his right, the dark patches were forming, lending a pure maroon gleam to the silvery tinge of the shirt, putting Ezra in mind of a well-used hammer made for the old cattle killing floors. Bleed and forever you shine, Ezra whispered to himself. Was that a quote? He was perhaps paraphrasing something that he had recently read pertaining to God's posturing and the importance of blood in sacrifice. He remembered also learning from that book the similarity. No the interchangeability of sacrifice and commitment. They were one and the same. Just like these burning scars were a sacrifice and yet also a commitment to his own pain. Did that knowledge help or hinder him? Ezra didn't know. What he did know was that he was hungry. He decided against dressing the wounds and headed straight for the refrigerator. Ezra made a point of avoiding the dining room table that sat in the kitchen center like the plague. He was now convinced that his grandfather, or a younger version of him, had really been here. It had come to him during his most recent writing session, but he had chosen to compartmentalize and focus on the story, which was another way he tended to process his apparent hallucinations. Step one, see something disturbing. Step two, be initially shocked and bewildered by it. Step three, go write about something else, someone else. And the subconscious now has room to process that disturbing imagery that the conscious mind was too disturbed by in the first instance. In this case, it had been a small thing, but it had led to an epiphany that his bewildered conscious mind was still shrinking away from. He had gone for seconds, he remembered distinctly, and when he had sat back down, he had neglected to top up his usual ketchup fountain. As usual, the first helping had been enough, yet, before the carbs truly settled in, the hunger pangs remained, muted as they were. And so, after helping number one, Ezra had rose from his seat and refilled his plate, then sat back down, considering the food in front of him. Deciding against a second helping, he had made a further decision to not cover the potato with ketchup, as it would spoil faster and wouldn't be as nice when reheated. The point being, the blood spot on the floor and the newly reddened mashed potato he had shoved in his mouth, in fact had been blood, his grandfather's blood, and he had washed it down with mashed potato, with next to no reaction, as he remembered, probably because the blood tasted exactly like his own. Damn, Ezra muttered, standing at the kitchen sink. That was him. That was him. He was here. And he bled on my food. And he ate that food to check if it was ketchup. And it wasn't ketchup. It was blood. And I didn't care because it tasted like mine. Which also proves he's my grandfather. And a time-traveling wolf. What the fuck is happening right now? All these words came out in the space of a few seconds. Next to no breaths between them. 
A cup of coffee, now cold, that his father had probably made for himself before the inevitable phone call, sat on the counter to his left. He picked it up and sipped, wincing at the lack of sugar. The wince was enough to make him spill the coffee down his lips slightly, which led to the cup further shaking, causing cold coffee to drip down his fingers. Still holding the cup, he glanced at it close up, realizing to his sudden horror that the dripping drips on his fingers were pure black, like crude oil or demon blood. Ezra made a face of disgust, and that same face reflected on the cup's surface seemed to expand out of the ceramic. It was his face, but it was reduced down to a size of a passport photo, and seemingly turning monstrous, protruding out of the side of the cup like a portrait, come to life and struggling for freedom. The disgust in Ezra's face increased exponentially, making the smaller ruined ceramic face almost indescribable. He screamed, and so did the cup. Finally, he dropped it. Or maybe he threw it onto the unforgiving kitchen floor, the cup smashing along with a mere 5% of his terror. His hallucinations tended to be at least slightly contextual, but this wasn't right. Something was very, very wrong. I need to get out of here, he stammered. Now, he steeled himself for what that meant, then recoiled. The outside world. Things could hurt him there. Things could hurt him pretty much anywhere, given that they were his visions. It was like going on vacation to run away from your problems, then realizing upon arrival that because you, whoever you may be, are the one present on said vacation, all the problems that you were attempting to flee from just remained clung to the edge of your mind, following you wherever you went. Sometimes foreign surroundings help take your mind off the problem. However, when Ezra considered the uncertainty of knowing whether or not what he had just spent the last four hours writing about his sister and her spacebound recovery, the red planet from his dreams, the scimitars, the ion storms, and of course, the mysterious masked mercenaries had really occurred, or rather, would really occur, as for some reason he had seen fit to set his latest story in the year 2018 in some far-off place called the Janus Three Expanse, or whether it was all in his mind. Ezra continued to consider this as he cleaned up the broken coffee cup, dumping the contents in the kitchen trash. It would be a simple matter for him to make a call to the hospital, to ascertain whether or not Kaya was still there. If she wasn't, that either meant she had been discharged, which wouldn't make sense in her condition in this current year, 1991, or perhaps she was truly flying a scimitar, called the Taurus, out of the upper atmosphere of the mysterious Acatania and into glistening voids beyond, which would be questionable to say the least but a much more positive result. At least out there, she had people who could really take care of her. And more than that, out there, Kaya felt as if she had a purpose. That feeling of purpose brought on a sudden, but no less purposeful feeling in Ezra's gut. Their connection, it seemed, was still alive. He could sense that wherever the hell she was headed next, it was where she wanted, nay, needed, to be. Perhaps in the coming years, Ezra would join her out there, among the stars. Maybe. He decided against calling the hospital. If what he had just set down in ink was real, then he knew he had to be extra careful with anything he said and did for the next little while, at least until he'd gained a better handle on what was going on inside his brain. And beyond. Ezra's heart was telling him that a calm state of mind would be the best thing for him, and, if their unique link was to be believed, his sister as well. This meant immersing himself in a world that was not his own, that did not belong to him, and there was no better way of doing that than with a good book. Earlier in the day, he had attempted to read to distract himself, and it hadn't gone well, but he had always found reading more relaxing after writing his own work. A thought struck him then, one that seemed to carry him from the large kitchen bookcase back up the stairs in the direction of his bedroom. Instead of entering his own, however, he found his hand gripped around Kaya's lake house bedroom doorknob. Before he knew it, he was inside, 
staring at his sister's collection of books, all of which lived on a tiny dust-covered shelf in the corner of the room. Compared to Ezra's collection of literature, Kaya's was pretty minuscule, but it consisted mainly of crime thrillers, science fiction companion novels, and a collection of Lovecraft stories. There was, however, one book that seemed to stand out from the collection, at the same time being hidden within it, a leather-bound journal filled with entries inexplicable to the naked eye. Only some entries were in English, and those that weren't didn't seem to be in any language Ezra recognized, dead or alive. Not much was known to Ezra about where his sister had acquired the journal, but he did know that every time he had found himself in Kaya's room for whatever reason, he would find his eyes wandering in the direction of a specific section of a bookcase. The twins had opened the book together before, but upon viewing the seemingly indecipherable symbols, upon noticing that the entries had the ability to appear and disappear, and above all else, upon noticing that some of the entries were dated far in the past as well as far in the future, it seemed that the twins had collectively decided, given their individual and collective vulnerable states, it wasn't something that they were quite yet ready for. That, however, was years ago, and given recent events, Ezra individually at least decided that he was ready now. Retrieving the journal from the bookcase, Ezra lay down on his sister's bed and opened the journal at a random page. My dearest guardian, this is likely the final entry that will be inked in this journal before it shall be passed on to a new owner, as you passed it on to me, what feels like so very long ago. It always feels strange pouring my heart out into these writings, reading them over briefly after the entry is completed in a somewhat reflective manner, closing the journal, and then opening it to find those words vanish from sight entirely. I used to wonder where those words disappeared to. Now I know. Other than some kind of mystical security system, it ensured that the journal could be passed on to those who needed it without any need of replacing or rebinding. Journals like this were hard to come by. On the back of it, as well as on the spine, there are inscriptions. I only know, my darling, that my experience in the half-seen world of the Demimon started out almost entirely as a choice. It was what that choice brought along with it that I did not anticipate. What at the time I could not have anticipated, careless and entitled as I was. Perhaps that's why it chose me. I can tell that you know I am not referring to this journal. Despite the unsavory abstract methods by which I acquired the information and skills, I was able to translate the inscriptions on the journal's blurb. I knew at the time I wouldn't be the first to do this and I somewhat doubt I will be the last, but I came to the conclusion that the engravings on the back of the journal were and are far older than that of the ones on the spine. And so, naturally, I started with what I hoped was the beginning, and was able to transcribe several spells on separate pieces of parchment, personally memorized and hidden away in separate, secret places known only to me and trusted others known to both of us. I do hope you approve of those I chose to confide in, but I always remember you saying repeatedly that your trust in my judgment was and is never in question. It is one of the many things I have needed to survive without you all this time. Regardless, the spells are safe. I won't, of course, go through all of the translated ones. Time is short, and I never forget who I'm talking to. But I will share one of the first ones I came across that related to conjuring up writings from previous owners of this journal. Comparatively rather basic to the ones I latterly dissected. But even this simple spell comes with its own difficulties. It isn't just the difficult incantation pronunciations, nor the sheer length of the seances and rituals themselves. It was the fact that once you had managed to reveal the writings, which itself was trial and error depending on whether you had acquired a list of names of the journal's previous owners, something I did not possess, there was more than a 50% chance that the journal owners themselves spoke their own secret, ancient, perhaps even technically extinct languages still being spoken by the few. Languages still spoken in the world today, even remote ones, were at least possible if troublesome to translate. 
but ones that didn't seem to exist in any part of Earth's history? That was another matter entirely. How fortunate then that I managed to translate a second spell from the journal's engravings, one that allowed me to convert at least a few of the indecipherable entries into Latin, a language only half-dead, giving me a much stronger basis to work with. I came across many entries, but those relevant to my own entry included some kind of newly ancient song, and I used the phrase newly ancient in the way that you yourself would. In short, these indecipherable writings could just as much be from the future as from further in the past. Those not as discerning as myself may just assume, if they are successful, in revealing previous writings, perhaps on certain pages, that they are bound to be from previous owners. But where indeed is the proof of this? Just because I was able to use magic to translate entries written in otherworldly languages into Latin doesn't mean that the entry comes from ancient Greece. Latin was perhaps merely the bridge language chosen by the journal's original owners. I suppose that I, at least, may never know. My point is, I was able to translate parts of what I think are the verse and chorus of a song, or possibly a poem, favoured by the writer of the entry in question that differs from the others, which is the other reason I bring it up. This particular entry closed with a date, which I believe was marked in the early 21st century in blue ink, from what I can tell. You impressed yet, darling? I've been doing my homework. I thought I'd found a way. Thought I'd found a way out. But you never go away. So I guess I have to stay now. Oh, I hope someday that I make it out of here. Even if it takes all night or a hundred years. Need a place to hide. But I can't find one near. Wanna feel alive. Outside I can't find my fear. Strange, do you not agree? For this to at least possibly be dated so many years from this one, and to feel so much kinship with whoever wrote it originally, or whoever felt the need to write it down once again, to remind them of something, or possibly in the context of this journal, to help them forget, to help them move on. I hope they do. I might have found a way to stop this, to stop the descending darkness. Even those who choose not to see are breaking out of their shells of denial. The sun no longer rises like it used to, and sets far too quickly. Winter has come much earlier this year, and many people on the streets are suffering and dying. I periodically return to where I first fell. You know the place I mean. Since the darkness came in a month ago, it has been somehow tainted. It seems to be some sort of crack in the lens that has been pulled over the rest of the city, and those who have the eyes to see can see it, watching and staring. I'm not saying I'm the only one who can see, although I once thought I was. But what I am telling you is that I think I've found its source. North London a seemingly remote wood in the middle of Barnet called Coldfall. By the time I get there, my dear, it will be dark and far colder. Going by daylight would be the obvious solution, but the grey smog that seems to replace or cover the sun would I suspect be too good a hiding place for such an entity. In truth, I don't know. Maybe if I can't immediately spark the flame, I may learn something in Coldfall wood that will help bring me closer to a way to save London. It may well be that there are others like myself trapped in Coldfall we need someone to rescue them. Maybe I am walking into a trap, just as they did. But I have a hunch that, if there are people trapped there, they won't have gone in as prepared as I will be. I, my love, have your teachings. May we stand unshaken amidst a crash of worlds. Eva, November 1884. P.S. I always remember what your final words to me were on our last and hopefully at least penultimate meeting, when I asked if it was possible for us to see each other again. You grinned and said, 
Eva, my adorable little raindrop. What a thing to say to a being with a solid silver self-cleaning sorcerer separator. Oh, my dearest guardian, you never cease to make me smile. If you're a podcast clown like I am, you must have dreamed about starting your own. Let me tell you, my dreadful darlings, it's never easy, but it's one of the best decisions I ever made. It was either that or waste away in my own subjective ascendance. Of course, it can be more than just a little overwhelming to know how to get started. Buzzsprout can help you launch your podcast professionally and in style, linking you with all of the major podcasting platforms such as Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and much, much more. Join us up in the buzzing, sprouting podcast cloud to breathe in the renowned analytical sound of the accurate analysis and promotion tools provided. Follow the link in the show notes below to start your journey and receive a $20 Amazon gift card. We're waiting for you. Buzzsprout, the best and excitingly prettiest way to start a podcast.